Welcome to On the Line with the AMA, the official podcast of the American Motorcyclist Association. I'm Alexandra Terhorst. On today's show, we're talking with Eric Pritchard, President and CEO of the Motorcycle Industry Council, and AMA President and CEO Rob Dingman. In addition to leading the two most influential nonprofits in American motorcycling, Dingman and Pritchard also direct important affiliate organizations like the AMA Motorcycle Hall of Fame and the Motorcycle Safety Foundation. Recently, there's been some unprecedented collaboration between these two organizations. But before we talk about that, let's start with what the AMA and the Motorcycle Industry Council do. Here's Eric Pritchard. MIC, the Motorcycle Industry Council, is the Motorcycle Industry Trade Association. That includes not just manufacturers and distributors of motorcycles, but also the aftermarket, dealers, and affiliated industries such as insurance companies. MIC also does work with the ATV and side-by-side industries, although those vehicles have their own trade associations. MIC has been around for over 100 years. MSF is the Motorcycle Safety Foundation. MSF teaches people to ride motorcycles responsibly using good judgment. MSF offers a variety of courses, ranging from an introductory experience to a course where if you pass it, it's considered the same as the skills test, passing the skills test, the DMV, and I believe 45 states. It's used by the Department of Defense for all their members of the military. The MSF offers more advanced uh, curricula as well. MSF's been around since the early 70s. So with that overview, let's turn it over to Rob for the AMA. Well, the MIC represents the industry. The AMA represents the enthusiasts. And while we have a business member program, many of whom are already members of the MIC, our interests are primarily relative to the riders. And we're the world's largest motorsport sanctioning body by virtue of the number of events that we sanction each year. We are the U.S. affiliate of the International Motorcycling Federation, the FIM, which owns the rights to all the world championship motorcycle races. But we are primarily an advocacy organization. Our mission is to promote the motorcycle lifestyle and protect the future of motorcycling. And this is something I think we really have in common with the MIC, that both have strong government relations departments that look out for the interests of the motorcycle industry and motorcyclists. And that's a significant part, I think, of what both organizations do. And I think, as many people know, we have a monthly publication that goes to all of our members. And we're just involved in so many different things. We have a subsidiary organization, the American Motorcycle Heritage Foundation, that oversees fundraising for the Motorcycle Hall of Fame. We have Motorcycle Hall of Fame here on our campus in Pickerington, Ohio. We have one building that serves as our MA headquarters and one that serves as the museum. So we're a lot more complex and complicated than most people would realize. And I think that you could say the same thing for the MIC. I think most people don't realize, even people who are familiar with it, don't realize how complex an organization that is and how many different hats are worn by the staff there. When the coronavirus COVID-19 crisis hit in March, it had an immediate nationwide impact on motorcyclists and the power sports industry, including the AMA and the MIC. Obviously, the COVID-19 crisis has been a challenge for both of our organizations. It's really hard to promote motorcycling when nobody's allowed to leave the house. So uh, I think we've been trying to promote motorcycling and encourage people 
use motorcycling as a getaway from everyday troubles presented by a global pandemic. But certainly it's posed some significant financial challenges to our organization. One of the primary means we have of acquiring members is through racing because you have to be a member to race in AMA-sanctioned racing activity. If we don't have racing activity, we don't sell any memberships at the race. So until we return back to racing, we're not going to see things turn around financially for us for quite some time. Now, we are seeing some pockets of returning to racing. I think that's a good sign, but I think we have to be cautious because I don't anticipate that it's going to come back full strength anytime in the near future. That's something I think all organizations are dealing with and will continue to deal with for the foreseeable future. Yeah, that's right. These are certainly challenging times for organizations like ours and for our members. It's hard to sell a motorcycle when dealerships can't be open, and it's hard to teach somebody how to ride a motorcycle if we're all being told to stay home. So it's been challenging, but these sorts of times present opportunities, and both MIC and MSF, and I suspect AMA as well, are looking at these challenges as an invitation to do things better. And we are trying to be better. We've spent a lot of effort on government relations, in particular to help people understand what is coming out of D.C. and what is coming out of the state level. Sometimes the information has been conflicting, sometimes just unclear. You have to unravel what's in the relief packages and then figure out what you and your business might qualify for and then how you might go about getting it. We've also been busy communicating that information out to our members and to the industry at large. It has been critical to get the information out to people as quickly as possible. We want the entire industry to come through this. So Rob's exactly right. There have been challenges, but also opportunities to do better. And I agree with his observation that caution is one of the key things we need to keep in mind. Nobody knows what's going to happen next. We've got some states that are opening up and what that means for business, what that means for training, what that means for racing, what it means for riding. We're going to know a whole lot more, probably in June and July, than we know right now. So we'll continue to monitor the situation just like everyone else is doing. It's an interesting time for all of us, and it's an interesting time for the industry. On April 28th, In the midst of the coronavirus COVID-19 outbreak and with stay-at-home orders in place in many states, Dingman and Pritchard issued a joint letter to motorcyclists. The letter offered support to America's riders, reminding them that motorcycle dealers across the country are doing everything possible to keep their doors open to provide crucial services to their customers. That was an outgrowth of one of our board members, Jerry Abood from Colorado. He represents the Colorado Motorcycle Dealers Association, also the Colorado Off-Highway Vehicle Coalition, and he was very instrumental in keeping the dealerships open in Colorado, and he suggested the joint letter, and I think it was a really good idea, and I think it was a nice thing to show our two organizations working together while we're hoping to drive some traffic to motorcycle dealers and remind people that they can continue to work on their bike if the riding opportunities haven't presented themselves yet where they live. Yeah, that's exactly right, Rob. I'm glad we did the letter. Glad we got that out to folks. And you're right, we've gotten some very positive feedback, in part because dealerships need to be open for service and parts, especially for first responders. So it's good that that's made available to first responders, and it's good news for dealerships to help them get through a difficult time. And we're seeing dealerships do some really innovative things in order to make their businesses run. 
including contactless sales and home delivery and all sorts of ways to streamline the process, reduce the friction, reduce the opportunity to spread the virus. And that's all been very good news. So I'm glad we're able to get the letter out, help show some solidarity for the industry. You know, at times like this, it's, it's important that people see that other people are, you know, being positive, that there's a plan for the future, that people aren't giving up or just not going to shut the door and turn off the lights and, you know, go back to bed. There are lots of folks out here working for the industry, fighting for the industry, and there should be future opportunities for us to work together and, and do more in the future. Over the last couple of days, I've visited quite a number of dealerships, and it certainly is a different experience than it was in the past. To walk into a dealership, to have to wait to get in because they have to wait till somebody, the right number of people to come out so you can go, go in, to have to wear a mask, to wear gloves, just really is a surreal experience. But it's working. Dealerships that I've gone to were relatively busy, lots of activity, things going on. So I was heartened by that. And from what Eric has told me, it sounds like there is good reason for optimism and that sales are, are actually doing okay. And hopefully it bodes well for the industry for, for the rest of the year. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, you know, there's not enough data so far to really draw a firm conclusion on the state of the industry. Everything's just too new. But anecdotally, there are some interesting bright spots. And, you know, looking ahead coming out of this, I think you're not really going to be inclined to get on a subway. You're not going to be inclined to carpool or ride a bus. Riding a motorcycle becomes pretty attractive for folks who might not have otherwise thought about becoming riders. So it'll be interesting to see what the mentality of people coming out of this whole experience really is. But I think there are reasons to believe that motorcycles will be attractive to a new audience. What's the path forward for motorcycling in America once the COVID-19 crisis recedes? What are the opportunities and what are the challenges? As we see the country start to open up again, we start to see events being allowed to occur. I worry that governments try to have the one-size-fits-all and they treat off-road racing events the same as a concert event, where concert event has got all these spectators that are close to each other and certainly at risk, whereas event that happens out in the woods where even if there are a lot of spectators, it, it happens over such a vast space that people can spread out. And in my mind, there's limited risk to the participants because they're racing and they're not really having that much interaction with each other. And if they do, they have all this protective gear that could also protect them from spreading germs to one another. Yeah, that's a good point. I suppose it makes us think about what our organizations might be doing in response to potentially heightened demand and also some new ways of doing things. I think from MIC's perspective, that work largely continues, although with additional focus on ridership and what that might look like in terms of bringing lots of new folks into motorcycling. In terms of training from the MSF perspective, there are opportunities there to maintain physical distance, uh, whether that's in a classroom or utilizing online tools that we provide. Um, Certainly on the range, where you're learning hands-on skills, people are going to be wearing a helmet and gloves. And that's consistent with some of the points you were just making, Rob, about physical separation just by virtue of the equipment you have to wear as a rider. It'll be interesting, as you said just a few minutes ago, what the effect will be on racing and, you know, further how we're all going to do our work in our respective offices and what that means in terms of physical separation. Do you have people working from home or at the office with enough separation? And is the work getting done? So, you know, there'll be some interesting challenges ahead for all of us. But like you, we're looking forward to them. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that aspect of when you bring people back to your offices and how you go about doing that and what measures you have to put in place, uh, those are things that are, are going to be challenging. You know, certainly as our state here in Ohio opens up, we're at the point, I think, where we would be allowed to bring our employees back, but I'm not really in a rush to do that. I'm really impressed with our employees' ability to be able to work from home. They've been, you know, certainly pretty close to, if not uh, as productive as they would have been in the office. Uh, so there's no point in bringing people back too early and putting them at risk, particularly if the job is getting done. And for us, you know, until more of the country opens up and there is more activity that is allowed to occur, uh, there's really no rush to bring people back here. So, you know, and then what does that look like on the other side? We're going to have to require all of our staff to wear masks and gloves or force them to stay at their desk or I really don't like the term a new normal because there's nothing normal about it in my mind, but there's definitely going to be a new reality that we'll be forced to live with. And I think going into this, everyone kind of hoped that, you know, this would be a couple of weeks of inconvenience and then we'd move on. But I think that our lives have changed dramatically, at least for the foreseeable future. And that's just a challenge for all of us to get our collective head around to figure out how we do things and to determine, hey, what things were we doing before that are going to still work and what things do we need to reinvent and what new things do we need to do? I agree and share your cautious approach in bringing people back. You know, one of the real life effects of what's going on is people with kids. They can't send their kids to school. They can't send them to camp. They really can't do any of the things they had planned to do for this summer. And so we're probably going to face a child care issue in the coming months. And one of the things we're doing is working with folks on our team to help accommodate that. The ones who demonstrated they can work from home, I just don't see any reason to change that, especially if it's going to be helpful to them as they tend to their own family needs. But, you know, looking ahead, and I don't pretend to know what the future holds, I'm terrible at predicting stock prices, so I assume I'm terrible at predicting all future events so we're taking it one week at a time, but I think you're right that this is going to have long-lasting effects. And how that plays out in terms of work, how that plays out in terms of business, how it plays out in terms of overall employment, this is going to be a memorable year for sure. We're doing our level best to help support our members just like you are, Rob, to help them get through it. And if we get them through it and we get our own organizations through, well, we'll just have to see how things look later this year. I'd really like to get back to working on motorcycling issues so we can remember why we're in this business in the first place. People think of both of our organizations and say, oh, you just must get to ride ride motorcycles all the time. And if that were only the case, certainly would, <laughs> would be a lot more enjoyable. But there is that stark reality that we are faced with the same challenges that everyone else on this planet is dealing with these days. So I'm right there with you, Eric, about being able to predict. I think if you were to ask me what this will look like uh, two months ago, I don't think I would have been able to predict where we are today. And I don't know that two months from now, we'd be able to say today where we're going to be, because I think it, it changes so rapidly and so quickly that we, you know, we just really have no idea. One thing remains clear. Motorcyclists love to ride, and Pritchard and Dingman share a common vision for the future. We are focused on trying to identify the things we can control and the things that we can improve. 
one of the initiatives that we have been spending a lot of time on is ridership, which we define as more riders riding more. And coming out of this crisis, we anticipate there will be lots of opportunities to grow the industry. Now, naturally, some of the ridership work has been slowed because we haven't been able to do some of the things we plan to do. I mean, we we're going to field test some tactics in the spring, but you just can't do that when you're told to stay home. But other opportunities have presented themselves. Look, at some point, this situation is going to slow down. The government relations work will slow down because there just won't be as much coming out of federal and state governments. And we're going to pivot to this new reality and a new, better way to support the entire industry and support the riders so they have opportunities to ride. So between our organizations, Rob, there's not going to be any shortage of work coming out of this. I know we've all been super busy, and I suspect that won't change. I think the, the point about ridership is really a critical point. The AMA was basically founded by a predecessor organization of the MIC as not-for-profits in the motorcycling space, both of our organizations exist to help perpetuate that. And so ridership is such a key issue. And Eric and I have talked quite a lot about ridership and the need to increase ridership because certainly the best way to make the industry more vibrant and for the industry to sell more motorcycles is to get more people riding and get more people riding more. And that's something that I know, Eric, you're very focused on something we're very focused on here at the AMA as well. And, and I think that we've got a good head start on working together to achieve those things. And one of the things I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about was the relationship between the two organizations, because it's not always been a great relationship. I think I'd go so far as to say it's been strained over the years, but I want to say since the start of Eric's tenure, you know, we've enjoyed uh, great communication together. It always has troubled me that we didn't have a stronger working relationship, and I've just been really pleased with the relationship that we're developing because so many people ask me, and I know, Eric, they ask you about why we don't work more closely together, and, and I'm excited that we've had the opportunity to work together, and you know, maybe a crisis is what it takes, too, to get people focused on the real things and the things that matter, but I'm just real appreciative that when you started, Eric, you came to see me around the time of the AIM show that was here last fall, and we just had a great conversation and talked about a lot of issues, and I think that was very helpful for both organizations and has been paying dividends. I think it'll pay dividends for the industry well into the future. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, since we started our discussions before things went sideways in the spring, I think we really laid the foundation to move together to not just send out a letter, but, you know, looking for opportunities where we can work together, whether that's increasing ridership or something else, although I'm confident that ridership is going to be the key collaborative effort between our organization for years to come. There'll be other opportunities, uh, and I think we're off to a solid start together. Your years of experience perspective from the enthusiast side really helps round out the picture. And so that's all been good. And I think whatever's happened in the past, we'll just let it be in the past and look for additional opportunities in the short and the long term. And I think between opportunities on ridership or at a trade show, which is going to be in Columbus in January 2021, there should be, you know, there should be something there and beyond. So I'm glad you brought that up. And I think that's really the path forward for the industry. I'm just thrilled to have the AIM show here. I think that's such an important opportunity for the leaders of the industry to get together. We're excited to see that show hopefully grow here in Columbus in the future. 
That's Rob Dingman, AMA President and CEO, and President and CEO of the Motorcycle Industry Council, Eric Pritchard. And we leave you with this thought. When it comes to social distancing, motorcyclists may have a leg up on just about everyone else. It's the ultimate social distancing mechanism. You know, you ride by yourself, you're wearing a full-face helmet, your, your mouth is covered. With respect to racing, your goal is to put as much social distance between you and the guy behind you. <laughs> On the Line with the AMA is a production of the American Motorcyclist Association. Since 1924, the AMA has been promoting the motorcycle lifestyle and protecting the future of motorcycling. Learn more at AmericanMotorcyclist.com.